0: Pursuant to Clause 1C of Rule 19, further consideration of H.R. 1 will now resume. The clerk will report the title.
1: It's March 3, 2021, only a few weeks after the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The nation is still shaken. The Capitol building still shows signs of damage. President Biden has been inaugurated and the House of Representatives is losing no time passing a major reform bill.
2: On this vote, the yeas are 220 and the nays are 210.
0: The bill is passed. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid on the table.
1: The bill's title is deliberate. This is House Resolution Number 1, the first bill introduced in the new Congress. The title is designed to communicate the urgency the Democratic majority attaches to pro-democracy reforms in the wake of Trump and the coup attempt. It's a sweeping bill tackling everything from elections to political contributions to ethics. The Democratic-controlled House voted this morning to pass HR1 along party lines.
0: As our Washington correspondent Alexandra Limon reports, the plan is unlikely
1: to become a law. There's one serious check on the zeal for reform. If the bill passes on a party-line vote in the House, it heads over to the Senate, where its prospects are dim.
0: Uh, I think this is a wrong direction to head. I don't think there's a right way. We're drafted by Democrats. They were implemented by Democrats, and they kept Democrats in power.
1: This should not be called the For the People Act. This should be called the For the Politicians Act. That would mean that many of the reforms we've described in this podcast will face an uncertain future. This is After Trump, Episode 6, Getting It Done.
3: No president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever, ever crossed that line. Um, The president continues to tweet and act. He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI I think they're unprecedented uh, in their inappropriateness. You know, a president should not be commenting on any uh, particular criminal investigation. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Shocking statements on the rule of law in the United States of America acknowledging... Trump the boys, stand back and stand by. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. But... A
2: source tells CNN that President Trump is discussing preemptive pardons for people close to him.
3: Because you'll never
0: take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong.
3: When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total, And that's the way it's got to be.
1: We've taken you on a Dantean journey in this series, revisiting the damage done to the republic by the presidency of Donald Trump. Over the last five episodes, we've chronicled how norms were shattered, loopholes exploited, and the Constitution's ambiguities laid bare. But Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer, whose book After Trump Gives Our Series Its Name, have not just cataloged damage, they've laid down practical plans for reconstructing the presidency. So the question now is, can it be done? In this final episode of After Trump, we look at the prospects for the future. We examine opportunities to fix the problems exposed by Trump's tenure as president. Indeed, you might think this moment would be a superb moment for reform. The Trump presidency, after all, was an excellent stress test. It revealed gaping gashes in the hull of the ship of state. And the former guy's out of office. There's widespread acknowledgement that Trump went too far. What better time to plug the holes? Here's Jack Goldsmith.
3: This is a propitious moment for statutory reform of the presidency for a lot of reasons. The first is that Donald Trump is no longer president. Certainly, if he were president, a lot of the reforms that aim to take norms and embody them in legal restrictions wouldn't have worked because he would have vetoed them. President Biden is not opposed to these reforms, at least he's given no indication that he's opposed to these reforms, and he shouldn't be because they're the type of reforms of the presidency that he's not going to be violating in any event, things like tax disclosure and avoiding conflicts of interest and the like. So you have a presidency that should support these reforms. That's absolutely vital to making them happen. There's probably not uh, the will in Congress to override a presidential veto, but you have a president who's willing to accept these reforms you have a time period at least for the next 12 months where these reforms aren't directed at Donald Trump per se he's out of office and so you can have these reforms in a way that they don't seem like they're directly or overtly anti-trump reforms and you have democrats controlling both houses of congress they should and they they did support these reforms during the trump presidency and there should be enough republicans who traditionally supported these reforms for the last 50 years these were these these norms had a bipartisan consensus that they should be on board in theory. So the conditions in theory are ripe for reform of the presidency.
1: And there's been intense interest in After Trump on Capitol Hill since Lawfare published the book last fall. Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, who wrote the book, are discussing specific reforms with congressional staffers. And ideas from the book are popping up in a variety of legislative proposals. But is interest enough to get some of these necessary reforms into action? Here's Bob Bauer.
2: We have definitely seen interest, and it's reflected in a bill uh, that the House Judiciary Committee passed last year, a bill that is concerned broadly with presidential accountability and includes pardon power reform, to which Jack and I devote a chapter. So there's been interest in pardon power reform, Interested in interest as well in um, amendment of the law to address foreign interference in elections. We've had inquiries also about, and I think it's evident from the public record, war powers reform. So there are a number of areas where we've seen either full committee interest or individual member interest in some of the reforms that we talk about in the book. And I think some of those reforms can be presented in a way, just as the current Democrat-Republican Alliance on War Power Reforms exhibits. These reforms can be discussed outside that frame of who likes and who doesn't like Donald Trump and can, I think, draw bipartisan support.
1: And yet the project of reform won't be as simple a path. The reason is that H.R. 1, that big reform bill, has a lot of stuff in it beyond the codification of norms.
2: H.R. 1 is a much more uh, comprehensive uh, vision of what is required in the way of reform, meaning there are some questions that Jack and I simply don't take up in the book that are just not relevant to our project of reconstructing the presidency, at least not directly relevant. So for example, the H.R. 1 is seeking to curb partisan gerrymandering and to take the politics out of gerrymandering at the state legislative level through independent commissions, at least for congressional redistricting. And campaign finance reform is another objective in H.R. 1. Voting rights reform is an objective of H.R. 1. And so while it does address some presidential abuse of power questions, primarily, for example, in measures like mandatory production of tax returns and strengthening the Regulatory apparatus for ethics enforcement in the executive branch. It is an 800 page bill that is supported by a wide range of reform advocates on a wide range of issues that are outside the specific scope, reconstructing the presidency that Jack and I were engaged with.
1: So, what's in HR1? Trevor Potter is an expert on campaign finance and election law who used to sit on the Federal Election Commission and now runs the Campaign Legal Center a group that advocates for election reforms. Here's his partial overview of the giant bill.
0: The bill covers disclosure of money spent in elections, so-called dark money. Another piece of the omnibus bill is Federal Election Commission reform. There is an FEC reform piece in the bill to create two Republicans, two Democrats, and and one independent. There is there are two public financing pieces in the bill. One is a repair of the presidential public funding system. HR1 also has a provision for matching funds in congressional elections. There's an ethics provision in the bill. At that stage, oh, there's importantly a provision to require independent redistricting commissions to be established in states that don't already have them. There are limited provisions dealing with the right to vote, the freedom to vote, making it possible for people to vote.
1: Embedded in the many hundreds of pages of this bill are a bunch of ideas that'll be familiar to our listeners. Bob's and Jack's recommendations from after Trump. Here's Adav Noti, one of Trevor Potter's colleagues at the Campaign Legal Center.
4: I think there are... Um at least two areas in which the For the People Act tries to address some of the uh, executive branch abuses that we saw during the Trump administration. One is in the area of government ethics. So
3: I could actually run my business. I could actually run my business and run government at the same time.
4: If you're the president of the United States, Um, there are certain things you are not going to do. Like you are not going to use the government to try to enrich yourself by funneling government money to your own businesses. Um, That's the sort of thing nobody ever thought you had to write down in a law before. Um, Turns out you do. Um, So there are a number of provisions in the For the People Act that would codify uh, pre-existing ethical norms about executive branch behavior Um, self-dealing and self-enrichment and the like, and give some teeth to enforcement agencies to actually uh, impose consequences when when people break those laws. Uh, The other area of the For the People Act that gets at these sort of executive branch abuses, I think, relates to contact with foreign agents.
3: Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the
4: FBI? It's coming from um, There was an issue during the 2016 election with the Trump campaign um, engaging with agents of foreign governments um, to try to gain sort of an electoral advantage. And that obviously became a much more significant issue uh, after President Trump was elected. And the For the People Act uh, clarifies that those sorts of contacts, the use of government um, resources to further a campaign through contact with with foreign officials is indeed illegal and a a very serious offense.
1: There are some other provisions too, those pesky issues of foreign ties and undue help in elections. Adav says HR1 takes that on.
4: As to foreign involvement, most of what the For the People Act would prohibit is arguably already illegal, and everybody always thought it was illegal until um, the Trump administration. For example, Many, many former um, campaign officials from both sides in presidential campaigns have made quite clear that they always would have viewed contact from a foreign government offering to help the campaign as illegal and they would have reported it to the FBI and and officials from both sides have have made that quite clear. No one ever thought that was legal um, until the Trump campaign did it and then um, defended it vigorously. So the For the People Act, makes clear, to the extent it's not already clear, that if a foreign government contacts your campaign and says, we want to help you get elected, uh, you're not allowed to take that assistance and requires the campaign to report it to law enforcement, to, to the FBI.
3: This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life as work there.
4: On the ethics side, I think the main thing the For the People Act does is Uh, put some enforcement muscle behind the rules. So um, up to this point, the discipline for breaking ethical rules, if if a White House official were to break them, has always been with the president. It's the president's job to decide what uh, discipline to impose for breaking the ethical rules. And so the For the People Act would provide the government uh, ethics agency, the Office of Government Ethics with the ability to actually punish uh, executive branch officials who break ethics laws, even if the president is unwilling to do so uh, themselves.
1: The bill would also clear up ambiguities about what sort of assistance a campaign can take from agents of a foreign government.
4: The situation with um, the meeting during the 26th Teen campaign in Trump Tower between agents of the Russian government and agents of the Trump campaign, including the president's son.
0: ...about that meeting at Trump Tower. For me, this was opposition research. If it's what you say, I love it.
3: Most people would have taken that meeting.
4: Has led to directly to the provision in the For the People Act that specifies that there's Uh, an offer of assistance from a foreign government it's illegal regardless of the nature of that assistance because one of the issues that came up during the Mueller investigation was that there was arguably uh, a little bit of ambiguity in the law as to whether uh, there had to be a monetary transaction at issue the for the people act would make very clear that even if it's non-financial assistance um, that that would unlawful and that would also reach the scenario of the president seeking assistance from you know the Ukrainian government because it it doesn't matter whether the foreign government assistance is is requested or just offered um, the law equally prohibits receiving or soliciting uh, foreign involvement in American campaigns so that the clarification that the foreign assistance needn't be financial to be illegal would, would reach both of those scenarios.
3: I didn't have to turn it down, because as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president. The For the People Act
4: would codify the pre-existing norm that every president uh, in recent history had always followed, that they divested themselves of their financial obligations upon taking office to avoid conflicts of interest. Um, the The bill would require that an incoming president and vice president either divest themselves of their financial interests or place them in a blind trust so that um, they have no control over the buying or selling of the assets and don't actually even know what what they own so it can't affect their decision-making.
1: Get this, it even contains a requirement for disclosure of presidential tax returns. I
3: will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now for two or three years, so I can't do it until the audit is
1: finished.
4: Yes, and, and this is another norm that uh, presidents and presidential candidates, successful and unsuccessful, had abided by for generations, that they disclosed their tax returns. And, uh, of course, President Trump declined to do that, and the For the People Act would make it mandatory.
1: The problem is that these ideas, which shouldn't be controversial on their own, are wedged in among provisions in the bill that are controversial, at least among Republican politicians. Here's Bob.
2: There's no question that, I mean, reform being hard, there are only only so many times that the Congress uh, can turn with energy and focus uh, to any sort of difficult reform initiative. And so it is certainly possible, and there was an article in the New York Times to that effect recently that the fight over HR1 is going to determine whether there's any kind of reform, not to mention what kind of reform there will be, that touches on the areas that Jack and I are concerned with in the next couple of years. If it succeeds, if HR1 goes through, then it'll define what is probably possible in the next two years in the areas that we're concerned with, and it'll address much more. If it fails, uh, then it's likely that it will at least slow a turn to the other reforms that are pending that are more focused on the issues that Jack and I took up in our book.
1: It's a familiar problem for those trying to bring change in Washington. Do you try to pass many small reforms, each with differing chances of success? Or do you bring a giant package, every conceivable fix, under one umbrella in hopes of enacting transformation all at once? The proposals in H.R. 1 address a wide range of issues, from voting rights to political contributions, and some of them are indeed the reforms discussed in After Trump. But there are also critically important reforms that H.R. 1 doesn't touch on at all. Here's Jack.
3: So one area where we might have expected congressional interest that we haven't seen any yet concerns the application of the obstruction of justice statute to the president. This, is, this was an issue in the Mueller investigation. Mueller uh, spent a lot of time arguing about why the obstruction of justice statute would apply to the president as it's currently written. There are a lot of uncertainties around that. One of the proposals we make in the book is to clarify that in a constitutional way to make clear that certain activities of the president can constitute obstruction of justice. This is kind of the most important reform that Congress can undertake with respect to uh, regulating relationships between the president and the justice department and the president's interference in law enforcement. And given the experience of the last four years, one would have thought that there would be interest in Congress on this issue, especially since it's conceivable anyway, that this president might not oppose such the current president, President Biden might not oppose such reform. To give a sense of how important clarifying the application of the obstruction of justice statute is to the president, consider volume two of the Mueller report, all of which was about this issue. Mueller outlined 10 possible instances in which President Trump might have violated the obstruction of justice statute. He didn't reach a conclusion on that issue. He didn't reach the conclusion on the issue in large part because of a Justice Department opinion that does not allow a president to be indicted while in office, but it was very clear that the Mueller team struggled with whether and how the obstruction of justice statute applied to the president. They spent a dozen or so pages on it. The analysis was complicated. I didn't find it very convincing, and there's certainly another side to it. It's not at all clear that the obstruction of justice statute does apply to the president as it's currently written, or that the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, would read the statute to apply to them. So this was one of the most central issues that came up during the in the Trump era. And Trump abused his office vis-a-vis the Justice Department and vis-a-vis the investigation of him. And yet the law that governs it is still unclear. Uh, and it's an issue in, in which Congress really needs to weigh in, whatever the right answer it is, is whether the obstruction of justice statute does apply to the president and how is a crucial issue on which there shouldn't be unclarity. And yet Congress has not weighed in at all on this issue.
1: The clock is ticking. The Democratic hold on the House and Senate may not last beyond 2022, after all. And if Trump were to say, declare that he's running for president again, shudder, it may suddenly be hard for Republican members of Congress to support reforms that respond to his conduct or mandate disclosure of his tax returns. Also, the urgency, along with the memory of just how catastrophic the Trump presidency was, dissipates over time.
2: The longer we wait to do this, the longer, the more time passes. I, I worry that there will be, for want of a better term, complacency that takes hold. Sort of more time has passed since the events that really shook people into the belief that reform was required. And, of course, there are huge pressing national problems that require attention, and no one has ever accused Congress of being able to do many complicated things all at once, except under the most dire pressing circumstances. And so I do worry that if nothing at all is done in the next 18 months, that a significant amount of momentum will be drained out of this particular reform program.
1: When we started this series, I said that witnessing the Trump era in American history was like watching Notre Dame burn. The former presidency was a harrowing structure fire that caused incalculable damage, but ultimately left the sanctuary still standing. After Trump, our country, our democracy and our system of norms and laws are shaken, but still standing. With memories of January 6th still fresh in our minds, we must move now to rebuild, repair, and reinforce the presidency so the republic is not caught off guard again. It's far too risky to leave the White House open to a president bent on self-enrichment, suppression of the media and the vote, obstruction of justice, and the retention of power at all costs. So now it's time to... Well, I'd say build back better, but that slogan seems to be taken. So let's just say, less catchily, that it's time to demonstrate the political will to fortify our system of government and prove once again that we citizens are worthy of this republic and can keep it. After Trump is based on the book After Trump, written by Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer from Lawfare Press. This podcast only scratches the surface of these topics. To learn more, to get in the weeds, pick up After Trump by going to aftertrumppod.com book. This episode was written by me, by Benjamin Wittis, and by Zachary Frank. This podcast is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. The series is hosted and executive produced by me, Virginia Heffernan. From the Goat Rodeo team, scripting and audio production from Zachary Frank, editing by Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, production assistance from Rohini Korup and Bryce Clem. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief. And be sure to help our work by leaving us a rating and review. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening.
0: You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep it her out for us.